Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. We've previously looked at how being the people of God means that we are people of a promise. But on that occasion, what we largely looked at was the promises of God that have been made over us as a people. Today we're going to look at what it also means when we say that we are a covenant people. Covenant. It's a word we don't use so much today, unless you move in legal circles. It's certainly in concept been around for a long time. I think the earliest known example at the moment is a covenant between the Hittites and the Mitanni. And that dates back some 1400 years before Christ. But in fact it was a common thing. And the word that gets translated in our Bible as covenant actually appears 284 times in the Old Testament. It starts in Genesis 6.18 where God says to Noah, I would establish my covenant with you. And it goes right through to Malachi 3.1 where the messenger of the Lord is referred to as the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. It appears over 30 times in the New Testament, from Matthew right through to Revelation. Covenant is a theme that runs the entirety of the Bible. And so we need to be careful that just because we don't use that word very much today, that we do not forget that our God is a covenant God. Entering into them has been a part of the way in which he has interacted with mankind for millennia. So what is a covenant? At its very heart, a covenant is a solemn promise. In modern times, it's an enforceable promise because it falls in the gap between a contract which requires the consent of both parties and this thing called price and consideration and an ordinary promise which is not generally enforceable in law. It tends to be used where an agreement is essentially one-sided but there is a desire to make it enforceable. Today, covenants are distinguished by the presence of a seal. In Old Testament times, in fact, they were sealed as well. But they were sealed with a sacrifice. So in essence, it's a solemn promise that the maker intends to be legally bound to. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology gives us a helpful definition. In theological terms he says, a covenant is an unchangeable, 
divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. He says unchangeable. Once established, it cannot be changed. It can only be superseded or replaced with a different covenant. He uses the phrase divinely imposed. Although he refers to it as being an agreement, he says it's imposed by God. There's no room for negotiation on man's side. Our choice is you accept it or you reject it. Now, if you've been in church circles for a while, I'm sure you'd have heard some jargon. We use plenty of it. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's a shorthand that aids our conversations. But if we're not careful, it can equally replace truth of a deeper nature. And the trouble is we can pick up that jargon from other people without appreciating the full depth of what it means. To demonstrate, let's just pretend for a moment that we're going to set a test. A bit like an exam. There's only one question, so it's compulsory. And the question is this. Compare and contrast, because that's how all good exam questions start. Compare and contrast the old covenant with the new, giving examples under each. Who'd be up for that? Ooh, a couple. The braver ones amongst us. Because I can find some paper and pens if you really want. In Christian circles, what I'm getting at is we use these phrases. But to what extent do we really understand what they mean? This morning, I want to scratch the surface of this one a little. Let's start off with the Old Covenant. We talk about the Old Covenant usually when we're referring to the way that God interacted with men in the Old Testament period. But in fact, there's a number of covenants in that period. But they're generally considered to be cumulative. They add to each other. So really the term Old Covenant refers to the culmination of them all. It starts with Adam. The first covenant appears at the end of creation. Although the word covenant isn't used for it. It doesn't appear in the text. But all the elements are there. It's a covenant between God and Adam and Eve. Where God tells them to go and subdue the land. And he blesses them, warning them not to eat of the fruit of one tree. Now it's quite clear who the parties are. The conditions of the relationship are laid out very clearly. There's a promise of blessing for obedience. And the conditions are there for obtaining that blessing. That was the first and the most fundamental covenant between God and man. But it was broken. And as a result, the blessings promised under it were lost. 
as you go through the Old Testament, the next covenant you come to is the one made with Noah, just after the flood had subsided. You'll find it in Genesis 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This covenant is made between God and all of mankind and in fact all living creatures. And in it, God firstly blesses and commands Noah and his sons that they should be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. You'll find that in Genesis 9.1. It says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then he places all plants and all animals under human command. You'll find that in verse 2 and 3. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Thirdly, he forbids eating meat that still has its blood in it. You'll find that in verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. He goes on in verse 5 and forbids murder. And for your lifeblood I require a reckoning. From every beast I require it, and from man. From his fellow man I require a reckoning for the life of man. In verse 6, he says that violent men will be repaid with violence. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And then he promises that he will never again destroy all life. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And then he creates the rainbow as a reminder and a sign of that everlasting covenant. He puts his seal on it. This is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you.
And that is pretty much how things stand until we get to Abraham. And then in Genesis 17 we find this. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make a covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. And Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. I would establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Those opening verses of Genesis 17 bring into effect a new covenant which in fact started in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, 1-3, we see the promise to make Abraham into a great nation, to bless those who bless him and to curse those who curse him, along with all the peoples of the earth who would be blessed through Abraham. This is what it says. It says, the Lord says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonours you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. circumcision was to be the sign of the covenant it was going to be an everlasting covenant so this was a permanent sign for Abraham and his male descendants God says to Abraham as for you you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you he promises to give Abraham's descendants all the lands from the river of Egypt right across to the Euphrates. The promised land. To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. And he promises to make Abraham the father of many nations. That he'd have many descendants. 
and that the land of Cana as well as the entire Middle East would be his descendant. I will make you fruitful. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. It says that covenant was to be passed from one generation to another. And in fact it was. But then it was passed through Isaac to Jacob. You'll see that in Genesis 27. And then on to Ephraim in Genesis 48. And then as we get to Genesis 28, we find that Jacob has a dream. And God says to him, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you, until I have done what I have promised you. So God promises him to give him and his descendants the land, to make his descendants numerous like the dust of the earth. Again, to bless all peoples through him and his offspring and to watch over him wherever he goes. We then get to the time of Moses and we find another covenant. You'll find this one in Exodus 19. In this covenant, God promises to make the children of Israel his special possession. Among all the people, they were going to be special to him if they would just obey and keep his commandments. This is what it says in Exodus 19, verse 5. Now therefore, if you would indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. He promises to make the children of Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You'll find that in verse 6 of Exodus 19. To give the children of Israel the Sabbath as a permanent sign of the covenant. That's in Exodus 31 verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the children of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generation. But this covenant is conditional. Because right in the middle, God makes the cost of it quite clear. He gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. And those conditions start with a requirement of absolute loyalty. They start, you shall have no other gods before me. So in essence, 
when we talk about the old covenant, what we're referring to is living a life of trying to please God under the law. Because his blessing is to a large part dependent on that. And when you read through the historical books in the Old Testament, that is what you see. That when Israel was being obedient, when they were following the book of the law, they saw God's blessing on them. And when they were in rebellion, things were not so good. This setting of covenants carries on. You can see it in the life of Israel. You can see it in the life of David. But then suddenly, the prophet Jeremiah begins to see the possibility of something new. A new covenant. This is what he says. It's in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The prophet sees that God has different intentions for the future. A new covenant, which is significantly different to the old. Instead of being on tablets of stone and written on scrolls. The law is going to be written in our hearts and on our minds. It says God would be their God and they would be his people. But they would know God in an intimate way. And that their sins would be forgiven by God and would never be recalled. This of course refers to life after the birth and death of Jesus after the impartation of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost but after Jeremiah the thing goes silent for 600 years we hear nothing in fact for 435 of them the Jews hear nothing from God at all until the birth of John the Baptist when Zechariah, his father, prophesies. This is what it says. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Suddenly, after 600 years of silence, covenant is back on the agenda. The events at the very beginning of the Christian story link right back to the covenants made with Abraham and Moses and before. And then, 30 odd years later, as Jesus sat at a table with his disciples, celebrating what was going to be his last Passover meal, Jesus refers to it. He took the cup of wine, he blessed it, and he said, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The account in Luke in particular says, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Referring to his blood that would soon be shed. His blood that would fulfill the requirement for sacrifice under the old covenant. Jesus talks about the start of a new covenant. Maybe he was mindful of the prophecy of Jeremiah. Because Matthew records that it is for the forgiveness of our sins. That price would soon be paid. As you read through Acts, Peter in particular tells the people that they are children of the covenant God has made with their fathers. He tells them that God has sent the resurrected Jesus first to them to bless them and forgive them of their sins. He proclaims Jesus to be the covenant seed that was promised to Abraham. Paul in his letter to the church in Rome in chapter 11 talks of the covenant. He talks about a covenant relationship and he states quite emphatically that God has not rejected the Jewish people. But he says that the Jewish people's rejection of Christ was a stumbling, not a falling. He continues that the Jewish rejection of Christ opened the way for the Gentiles to be saved. And he considers this turn of events to be a huge blessing for us, the Gentiles. But then he asks, if this Jewish failure to accept Christ brought such blessings to the world, what greater blessings will come when the Jewish people finally join the Christian fellowship? The good news is, we live under this new covenant. Not the old. 
Christ fulfilled all that was required of the old covenant and he sealed the new one with his blood. The question is, what does this mean for us? If we go back to Jeremiah, instead of being on tablets of stone and written on scrolls, the law, it was said, would be written on men's hearts and minds. What it means is we're no longer bound to the law. We no longer have to live our lives observant of all types of rules and regulations. We don't have to worry about how far we can walk on the Sabbath or whether our clothes are made of mixed fibres. Instead, we live under grace. Because the law is written on our hearts and in our minds. We have a conscience that helps us know what is right and wrong. And we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us that whispers to us, guiding us, correcting us, and helping us discern. Jeremiah said that God would be their God and they would be his people. We are the people of God. We can have no other gods. We are his people. We are chosen. We are cared for. We are loved. We are protected. That list goes on and on and on. Jeremiah said that we would know God in an intimate way. And instead of having a remote God with priests as intermediaries, we now have a personal relationship. The Holy Spirit indwells us. It lives within us on a daily basis. We don't have to rely on sacrifices and burnt offerings. Instead, if we sincerely trust in Christ's death, if we confess and repent of our sin, we can have continual invited access into the very throne room of the Father. Jeremiah said their sins would be forgiven and never be recalled. You know, there's no need today for the scapegoat. We don't need for the priests to lay their hands on the head of a goat, transfer the nation's sin and send it out into the wilderness. Because we are forgiven. In fact, better than that, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. We are presented perfect and holy before our God. So when he looks on us, he sees nothing wrong in us. The past has been wiped away. In Christ's life, in his death, and in his resurrection, we have atonement. As it's put in the letter to the Galatians, we are no longer slaves to the law. We are free. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. 
Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.